Welcome to Better You Live, an HCI podcast dedicated to giving you the tools, motivation, and inspiration you need to take things to the next level in your career and in life. Now, coming to you live from HCI's Main Street studio in downtown Cincinnati, here is your host, Alan Mellish. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Human Capital Institute's Better You Live. I'm Alan Mellish, and I'm your host. This is the HCI podcast where we give you tools, motivation, and wisdom to succeed in work and life. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone to rate and subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. If you've got a comment on Twitter, use the hashtag HCILive. Today's episode is brought to you by HCI's 2019 Strategic Talent Acquisition Conference. Join us in uh, June of uh, June 10th through the 12th in Denver, Colorado. Learn how to beat the talent crunch. Learn more at staconference.com. My guest today is Greg Slavor. He is the president and founder of Westwood International and For Our Growth. He has over 25 years of experience in executive leadership and ed- uh, executive leadership development and education, and has served as coach, consultant, and facilitator for companies across Europe, Asia, North America, South America, and Australia. I think that pretty much covers almost all the globe. <laughs> it's just about everything. <laughs> Greg is a frequent speaker and facilitator at the Global Institute of Leadership Development, and his areas of expertise include executive education and development, coaching, consulting, facilitation, and cultural improvement. Greg is, uh, is concerned with uh, several global, global companies and has founded the Global Community for Leadership Innovation. And uh, Greg loves to start his day with meditation and end it with a Green Bay Packers victory. Greg, welcome to Better You. Great. Thank you. Great to, great to be on. Appreciate it, Alan. Wonderful. So let's get started. And our topic of discussion today, if you didn't already know, is uh, building influence and persuasion. So I want to start right at the top with, Greg, how do you define influence and persuasion and why should it matter to our listeners? Yeah. So, I mean, influence and persuasion are, you know, two critical topics because a lot of, you know, particularly my clients and, and people I'm coaching and working with, have to have influence and or be able to persuade people where they don't have power. And so to me, influence or persuasion is that ability to shape or move someone from one place to another, either in their thinking or their actions, so that you can accomplish a particular task or follow through on a particular decision. And so influencing or persuading is the ability to shape and or influence or bring people along. Um, and, you know, there's many different levels to it from the thinking to the emotional to the action. And I'm sure we'll probably get into that as we move in. But those are that's my thought in terms of influence and persuading. Yeah. And I think so much of our uh, audience is probably in a role where they're, they don't have, let's call it formal power over how decisions get made. You know, most of us aren't CEOs or, uh, you know, monarchs or that kind of thing where you can make decisions by fiat. Most of us fall somewhere lower down the org chart. Uh, and even when you're sitting at the top of a, a large HR department, you still have probably have to convince a lot of people to, uh, to make the decision that you think is, is right, rather than just say, from now on, we do X instead of Y. 
Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, we'll get into, um, you know, some of the different ideas and concepts that, you know, relatively simple, but when put into play can make a big difference in terms of your ability to influence and persuade. Um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll give a simple example. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, go ahead. So there's this tool that I've put together and it's a combination of appreciative inquiry and some of the work that Doug Krug has done and some other authors, but essentially it's a five question process. So I just call it the five Q. What I've found is the, the way that people can be most influential is by helping people see it from their perspective, helping the listener see it from their perspective. So as an example, I ask people, when in the past? And if we can go back to the past and help people get in touch with that experience, it gives them the data that they need to make the decision in the moment that allows me to influence them. So if I'm starting, say, a leadership program, I'll often start out with, when in the past have you been a part of a program or a team that's really made a difference in your life. Have people write those down. Have people tell the stories. Mm -hmm. After they tell the stories, I say, okay, what are the themes that you see in those stories or in those examples? And then people share those themes. Now, the next question then is, okay, in this program or with this team or in this process, what should we do more of, better, or differently this round? And then we write that out and we get an agreement. The whole process maybe takes 30 minutes, 45 minutes. But what's amazing to me is at the end of it, I'll have a hundred percent agreement, a hundred percent buy-in mm -hmm. for the simple reason is that people never argue with their own data. And so the more I can take the time to use people's data to get to a point that's going to help us be better than we have been in the past, I now have, really from a facilitative perspective, been able to influence and persuade people. And the point that I'd love to make today more than anything is that our ability to influence and persuade is more about the process we set up than the points we can make. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> As an example, I, I have a lot of clients who will come in and say, you know, I'd like to start a leadership program, but I can't get the buy-in from the executive team or the senior right. leadership. And, or I can't get a seat at the table or I can't. And so the first step is, okay, what matters to them? What's their right. content? What's their experience? And how do we help them see that in their past experience, that if your initiative were a part of it, it would have been better. And, right. that, you know, that takes time. It takes listening. It takes creativity. But it is the best way to be able to influence and persuade really by facilitating a, facilitating a process. You know, I'll give another example. It's fascinating to me where oftentimes I'll help design and run and facilitate a strategic session, either a meeting for, you know, a department or a division or an executive. Mm -hmm. And after the meeting, we'll say, look, this is so important. Let's go out and do some research. Let's do some design thinking. Let's get creative here about what our next strategy steps should be. And we'll spend two, three, four months potentially on that process. Yeah. Well, as soon as we get everything written out, and as soon as we say, okay, here's the strategy, here's our process, here are the steps, I've yeah. seen executives team, teams then, let's send out an email, let everyone know what it is. And I'm like, oh, an email? <laughs> like an email, really? Because it's taken you three months of hashing this out and discussing it, that now you're finally bought in 
it's not the answer that we've come to that people are going to buy into. It's the process. So really what leaders need to begin to do then is what process can you take people through so they can understand from their own experience that they need to buy in here as well. And, you know, sometimes leaders are so stretched at this point, they skip the process. They expect to have an answer and a buy-in when it's not the answer that's the difference. It's the process. And so, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see how we want to shortcut things when it's really still a human issue and a human challenge. Yeah. And just to sort of tag along on some of that, um, the, uh, I think it's interesting. You touched on a lot of issues and I think one of them was really the listening aspect is, uh, is crucial, especially at the beginning. Um, and, uh, and, and another part, so you've got these uh, questions that you should be asking people and, then the other part of it is, you know, okay, the executive team, they've, they've done the, you know, even when they've been collaborative amongst themselves and, mm-hmm. and brought each other along, uh, they don't think to do that with the people who are going to be responsible for implementing it. You know, mm-hmm. it's not the head of finance that is going to, uh, that is going to actually be in the trenches. They're, sort of overseeing and hopefully coaching and all of that, but they're not, they're not the ones that is, uh, you know, at that stage when you're ready to implement, it's, it's really the people on the ground who, if they don't have that buy-in, it's not going to be implemented wholeheartedly. They're, you know, they're going to take the common attitude of like, Oh yeah, leadership made another decision. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad, but mm-hmm you know, uh, uh, new initiatives come and go. Uh, I've, I've got to focus on my thing. Yeah, it was interesting. When I was at GE and we did change management work, mm-hmm. they had a wonderful formula called Q times A equals R. And Q was the quality of the decision or the solution. Times A, which was the acceptance. Yeah. Which equals R, the results. Yeah, yeah. And what happens is oftentimes leaders will have a solution that they want to implement. They'll tell people to implement it. It won't go well. And then they'll come back and they'll say, okay, now what do we do? And they go right back to the queue and they come up with a better solution. When it really wasn't the queue, it was the A, the process, the acceptance. And so, you know, it's, and, and that's still the hard work. It's still the challenging work that, is, you know, it takes the time to, to make it happen. I, I think if there was a time I did a, a week-long Kaizen for a, an airline, mm-hmm. and it was fast. They were having trouble with um, customers, large buyers of their service um, were having struggles with their system. And so they asked us and some other people to come in and do a Kaizen, a week-long process to map out what was happening, where the difficult points are, and make suggestions for improvement. Yeah. And so arrived on Monday and I was so excited by Friday because we had mapped out, we had a whole room, every, all the walls with posters and charts and steps. And in one place we found that it took a client 163 touch points to get something solved. I mean, there were complex issues, but 163 touch points is too much. (laughs) And so I thought, well, we're going to win this one. And in the client, the CEO came in and, you know, everyone presented it and he right away said, you know what, this is, this is ridiculous. 
this isn't even the right thing you should have looked at. You should have looked at this client in this process. This makes no sense. And you walked out. Hmm. And I'll never forget the experience because I knew it was right. I knew it was on the wall. It was really important to him. There were 20 of us in the room that all confirmed it. Yeah. But we didn't take the time to bring him along on the process. We right. could have on Tuesday or Wednesday have said, look, here's what we're looking at. Here's what we're breaking down. Here's what we're finding. Any suggestions, any ideas, any concerns, any flags mm. before we got to Friday to make the presentation. It's sort of like trying to tell somebody a joke, but just skipping to the punchline and expecting them to laugh. Exactly. Exactly. And, and actually, that's a good that's a very good metaphor. You know, we got to bring the whole context in for people often to buy in and be persuaded. Yeah. And I think about that. I'm always fascinated by things in, you know, artwork or uh, media or that kind of thing, like where the example would be um, Van Gogh was tremendous uh, influential painter, but only after his death because he hardly sold anything during his lifetime. And it, it's not so much that there weren't, you know, there weren't people that appreciated him then. It was that he was a terrible salesman or the people that he had around him were, uh, were, were not capable of selling what he was doing. And so it wasn't until somebody was kind of, until after he died that they were able to, that somebody who, who was actually capable of bringing the art community and the larger culture ab abroad along and saying like, look at what he did. Um, you know, this guy in, 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 the, in, a, in another metaphor, this guy got the answer. This guy did something really profound, but we weren't able to tell you about it because nobody knew mm -hmm. or nobody mm -hmm. understood it properly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, you know, there's a, a wonderful book out called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, V-O-S-S. -S. Okay. And if anyone wants to look at you know, high stakes negotiation or being able to influence and persuade, I, I recommend the book. The one of the great lines he has or insights he has in the book is that when we're listening and when we're working with someone, if they say you're right, you're right, you're right, you haven't they haven't felt heard yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He makes this distinction where they have to say that's right. That's right. And in order to get to a that's right versus a you're right, you have to be listening in such a way that it's not just the yes and. Yes, and I think this, which is a, a great tool in improv and tool that people use to build on ideas and yes. for brainstorming. You have to get to a point where you can say yes and what else? What else? What else matters? What else am I missing? where you can just listen through a whole thread and pull that thread without interruption, either mentally or emotionally. At that point, people can feel like you really have listened. And when you paraphrase and you say, here's what I'm hearing you say, and they say, that's right. Now you're at a place where you can really begin to influence and persuade. And without doing that type of work up front, it's hard to grasp what their experience is and what they really need in right. order for you to move them from where they are to where they need to be. Because, I mean, essentially people are asking a few questions when they're talking to you or you're trying to influence or persuade them. 
They're asking, do I like you? Right? Do I like this person? You know, do I like or trust them? Two, what's their offer? And then three, what's this going to cost me? What's the benefit? What's the cost? What's that ratio? But that first piece, the trust and like part, if people don't feel heard, they're not going to be influenced. You know, right. There's nothing to- worse than feeling like somebody's condescending to you to say, sort of when somebody's actively trying to make you feel heard without actually having to listen to you. You know, we've all had that experience in a relationship, like a friendship or a romantic relationship where it's like, no, hold on. You're not understanding what I'm trying to say. You're just trying to get back to your book or your phone or whatever you were, you were doing. Right. All right. You know, I get, I get a call on the phone. Salesperson calls me on the phone. Cole calls me. Yeah. Hello, you know, Greg. And they go start on your spiel. I said, wait a minute, just hold on. What are you calling about? And then they continue with their spiel. I'm like, no, no, no. I just want to know what you're calling about. (laughs) And if they can't stop the spiel to tell me what they're calling about and really cut to the chase, there's no chance. Right. Thank you. Hang up. Right. Now, people say I'm too kind sometimes when I answer those phones, you know, (laughs) those calls because other people just hang up right away. But, you know, it fascinates me that people aren't even willing to get off of their script. Much less put their agenda aside or much less get to a point where they really care about the other person to listen and find out what's happening, what matters. Um, And it's, it really takes us from a level of, and I was with a group last week trying to explain this difference to them. I think they got it. There's the level of technique and method. Like I can teach you the specific questions and paraphrasing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that can be helpful. But if people begin to look at their being and their belief and begin to change that, it has significantly more impact than if it's a technique or a tool. Mm-hmm. So as an example, if I were to say to you, uh, yeah, sure, Alan, and, and what else? And what else? And then what else matters to you? And it's a technique, you'll pick it up. Right. But if I say to you, you know, what else really matters to you? Why is this important? Right. Why are you doing these podcasts? What What's the key for you? Right. And it's coming from a place of being. It's coming from a place where I really do care. It's completely different. You're almost better having the being and not having the technique. Yeah. And I find that um, it, it's interesting. Uh, I was listening to a psychologist. I was trying to differentiate between psychologist and psychiatrist. Psychiatrist is the one that gives you the drugs. Psychologist just talks to you. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the psychologist was on this program and he was talking about how, uh, talking about the power of listening and asking questions, you know, really listening. And if you just ask somebody questions in regular conversation, not in a therapeutic setting, it's mm-hmm. amazing how much, how interesting people become too. Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, his point was was that the once you are able to get beyond sort of some of the small talk and all of that kind of thing that that matters for uh, uh, starting a conversation or starting a relationship, once you can get beyond some of those um, pre-rehearsed scripts that we all carry, you can really start to learn about uh, about those fundamental questions about people's values, what they care about, what worries them. And it becomes, 
a much deeper conversation and you're uh, you're creating a, a real meaningful connection with somebody even if it's just at a cocktail party exactly exactly and you know there's there's probably no greater gift that we can give each other than our full attention yeah and for someone to you know really listen to me to not have an agenda and to do it with care and concern is a real gift i mean and we could probably think this past week, how many times did we get that gift? Probably not many. Right. Right. And so people who can begin to continue to practice that and live that way, especially in a leadership role or in a business or a company where there are so many stresses, pressures, you know, challenges can make a big difference. Um, which is ironic because in that respect, almost the less you do, the more influence you have. Mm-hmm. Right. Where you're not performing or attempting to, uh, you know, bend them to your will. You, exactly. you become, it's a, it's an interesting paradox where if you don't, if you're not concerned about um, create, you know, weaving a web around this person or trying to manipulate them, you actually become more influential for them. Exactly. And it's, and it's, you know, if we talk about influence and persuasion, I think it's that irony that is most difficult for people to understand. <laughs> the greatest mistake is I have to have a good argument. I have to have really clear facts. Yeah. I have to have my points straight. I have to not make a mistake. I've got to be perfect in this presentation. Then they'll believe me. You know, right. my PowerPoint's got to look good. And the irony is, yes, all of that will help. But the most important thing is, have you listened to them? Do you care about them? Do they know it? Do they trust you? And is this something in their best interest? Yeah. Which is really all the things that you have to consider from the other side before you move into what the ego says to do in, in some respects. So it's almost the opposite. You know, if you go back to the Q times A equals R, mm -hmm. You know, spending more time on the A will take you further than spending more time on the Q. Yeah, and and that brings me back to some of my thoughts about the you uh, inspired this uh, sometimes with great. If you have a great A, you're excellent at the acceptance part, the mm -hmm. um, uh, the buy getting the buy in. Sometimes you, if you, even if you have a more mediocre or maybe just a 66% of the way there solution, your result will still end up way outweighing somebody who's got a 99 percentile solution, but a much lower acceptance. Absolutely. I would always take a mediocre Q with a high A right. over a high A in a, or a high Q over a, in a small A. I, always, I would always take that. It, you're going to win every time. You're you're much better off having the A part of the equation, right? And it's uh, you think about that too. Like with, uh, 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 I'm sorry to go back to the art metaphor, but you think mm -hmm. about like there, there's always these stories in say pop music of you know the great genius who never quite got discovered or whatever. It's like well maybe he was a complete jerk and impossible to work with. And mm -hmm. so eventually, you know, the producers or his agent or whoever throw up their hands and say, like, look, you're creating great work, but I can't bring it to anybody because you're a mess. You're mm -hmm. 
you're unable to um, bring anybody along for the journey. You can't keep a sound engineer because you're impossible. You can't do this. Mm -hmm. It's the, um, that's the, I, I guess, challenge uh, that, and not that us, not that we're all undiscovered Paul McCartney and John Lennon types, mm -hmm. but uh, maybe it's even more important because we don't have, we don't all have undeniable 99th percentile solutions to bring to the table, but we can really ramp up our ability to, uh, to optimize the A part of the equation. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fascinating to me, the, you know, the Gallup research that talked about the engagement, you know, from the book, First Break All the Rules in, yeah. in, in the 12 Q press, which is, you know, pretty popular now. And yeah, it's very common. But if you look at those 12 questions, as I look at them, 11 of the 12, certainly 10 of the 12 are all mm -hmm. about people and connection yeah. and relationships and caring. They have nothing to do with technical skills or resources or money. Right. In terms of engagement. And so it's, you know, you look at that research, you look at the Q times A equals R, you look at the influence and persuasion research, all of them combined, it still says it's a people challenge. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's not a technique or a method. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that's definitely been sort of the, we talk a lot at the, uh, at the Human Capital Institute, or we have in the past about how, about the different, uh, the, the different eras of, you know, there's industrialization and then there's, uh, and the way that human capital um, has, uh, human capital and human issues have increased in importance the more, um, the more important it has been, it, uh, the more important skills and knowledge have become in the economy as mm -hmm. opposed to, uh, you know, early factory jobs that were much more about, you know, do this simple task repeatedly and you probably need a strong back to do it as well. You need to be mm -hmm. physical, able to physically endure the work um, rather than so much mentally and psychologically endure the work and enjoy the people you're, you're working with. Whereas mm -hmm. now there's almost no, or now so much of the economy is less emphasis on the physical world and more on the mental world. And uh, as we know, uh, relationships and uh, you know psychological safety there was that google study where they said that's right. you know one of the most important parts of a of a high functioning team they found at least in google but i would imagine it's pretty universal that if you're on a team it kind of matters that you can speak up if you see a problem you can uh, uh feel uh feel safe uh, expressing your opinion like you're not going to get slapped down uh, when they're trying to implement a, implement a new process or when the leader is trying to persuade. It's important to uh, for people to feel like they're heard and cared about. Right, exactly. And you know, it's the the other challenge I have with the, the Google work is that, yes, I think that safety is critical and leaders yeah. a lot of you know, emphasis in their role or the facilitator, whoever it may be, to create yeah. safety for people. But also the fact is nothing is ever safe. Right. You know, there's, there's, there's no place in the world that's completely safe. And so how do people develop the courage to act properly, even if things aren't safe or safe in the way that they would like them to be? Right. And I think part of what we need to do in organizations is not only create safety, but mm -hmm. also build courage. Yes. 
And if yeah. we're not doing both, we're really doing a disservice. And I would say creating more of a sense of entitlement than we are leaders and people that we want in our organizations. And so there's that dynamic that needs to go on of, yes, I'm going to create safety for you. And I also need you to speak up. And I'm also going to speak up. Right. And how do we do both of those at once? Yeah, because you need to, uh, even if you're loved and respected on your team, it still takes courage to say something that you, even if it's, that you think, even if you think it might be unpopular to say something, you need, you need to have that courage to overcome it. Mm -hmm. And another thought occurred to me is, I think a, a big part of what you're summarizing or saying is that the the we need we can't eliminate fear because you know it, the even the more comfortable and uh, wealthy we become as uh, as participants in the economy our brains will create their own fears mm -hmm. you know if we're not being chased by a saber-toothed tiger there's still going to be something <laughs> that mm -hmm. is going to uh, terrify us if we and paralyze us if we allow it to and so mm -hmm even when we're less likely to be uh, uh, eaten by a wild animal, we still need to figure out a way to overcome that fear and uh, rather than eliminate it. Yeah. And then it's, you know, in our, I was doing a workshop a few weeks ago down at um, Texas A&M and mm -hmm. there were probably 80 people in the room, 60 to 80 people in the room. And I did a piece on feedback. They did people didn't exchange role play and then they had to give feedback. Mm -hmm. And I asked the group, you know, how many of you in here, if someone else in the room had feedback for you, they could help you be better, would not want to hear it. Right. And nobody raised their hand. So everyone wanted to hear whatever feedback they could get that would help yeah. them be better. So then I said, okay, so let's do one more round. We did the next round. And I said to everyone, now give feedback to your person to help them be better. What's one area you think they can improve where they probably made a mistake in this last round and how they could be. Better? Yeah. And you can feel the fear was. <laughs> yeah. and I, said, wait, I said, wait a minute, we just did research, right? Everyone wants this feedback. Yeah. But this, the, the courage to give it wasn't there. Yeah. And so it's, there's a system in our minds and in our teams where we're almost wired to get what we don't want. Yeah. And that's why I say, yes, we have to create safety, but it's never going to be completely safe. We also need to be build courage. And the more we can work with people's own experience and their own data mm -hmm. to help craft or shape our position or our solution, the better and the more powerful it will be. And the being is more important than whatever technique we use. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot more that goes into it. But, but in essence, to really be able to influence and persuade, those are the elements that need to stack up to be a super influencer or a super persuader. Yeah. I mean, I'm fascinated with this, this process right now of running for president. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm watching some of the commentary and, you know, some of the first things people say are the person is authentic. They seem real. They're likable. <laughs> right. Yeah. Those are the, 
you'll notice those are the first comments that come up. Right, right. You know, it's all on the people side. Yeah. And and the people who are frustrated now with our system, it gets very visceral. You know, it's right. like you don't like. And it's 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 fascinating to me how how the process has evolved. Um, I went to my high school reunion this summer. Yeah. And when I came back, I noticed all this back and forth about politics. Right. Red blue or this or that or pro or con. And I never got into it because it just didn't seem to go anywhere. But I thought since I just talked to some people, I would share some thoughts, some questions, some comments. So I did. And after a few comments, someone would write back to me, hey, what side are you on? Are you pro yeah. or against the president? Are you red or a blue state? Are you? I said, I'm just raising the questions. Right. And people had a real difficulty with that because they didn't know what quote unquote side I stood on. Yeah, it's, tri- it's very tribal uh, right now. And I think it's easy. Um, it's really that question that they ask, you know, what side are you on is the most tribal question that somebody could ask you is like, you know, what? what side are you on? Are you a Cowboys fan or a Redskins fan? Are you, you know, like, it's like sports. Um, And, and sports is actually one of the, one of the things that I think is great about sports is that it channels our, some of our natural Mm -hmm. tribal instincts into a mostly kind of positive arena, or at least uh, takes a lot of the potential, um, harmful effects of tribalism out because we all agree that, you know, yes, we're fanatical fans of whatever team we're supporting, but for the most part, we're not trying to also overthrow the government by, <laughs> so that cowboy nation can, can rule on high from Washington, DC. It's, you know, we just want to win the Super Bowl. Right. Exactly. And here's, and here's why, you know, I share and raise that point when it comes to influence and persuasion, mm-hmm. that as and if things become tribal, it's really critical that we have people in our organizations who are able to be bridges. Right. And are not on sides, but are in a process. And the process takes, as we've discussed, a significant amount of emotional maturity. Yes. And hopefully people within our organizations are practicing in that way and leaders are practicing in that way so that they can develop the process to create bridges to bring people together and listen and build versus trying to figure out and take sides. And if we're on the take sides mentality, our approach to influencing persuading is creating all those mistakes that we've talked about mm-hmm. versus building the platform to have influence and persuasion where we're listening, considering the other person's data and giving them the opportunity to do the same. And so it's, you know, I think it's uh, more than ever, our world now needs people who are willing to be great influencers and persuaders from the right being, Mm -hmm. not from the place of taking a side or the loudest voice. Right. Yeah. And I think too, and it's, and it's interesting too, the, um, because uh, as part of my other roles here at HCI, we mm-hmm. see a lot of case studies from you know people re- improving their recruiting process or 
as a very successful employee engagement program. It's all, or a lot of it is focused on how do we get from the solution to something that actually is being done in practice and is successful. And the, a lot of the time it's the same old story. And a lot of it is what you're talking about where um, I was just looking at one the other day where uh, the, a big part of the process that this organization undertook to make their new recruiting strategy successful was to meet with all the business leaders and, you know, from all over the company, all the people that they're tasked with supporting as the recruiting organization and understand what they're, you know, what do you hate right now about recruiting? <laughs> what do you, what are the problems? And also what do you care about? Uh, just as a uh, as one part of this business and that they got a huge amount of feedback that was incredibly useful and they weren't able to uh, you know you can't do everything that everybody wants all the time mm -hmm. but because they had listened authentically they were able you know listened and really tried to understand and care about what their customer essentially was trying to do they were able to say, okay, we can't do all of this in the first run, but this is going to be, you know, this issue is going to have, uh, is going to get priority, you know, maybe next year or in the next iteration of this program. We're not going to forget about it. We've heard you and we will, uh, uh, we will fix this or we will find a new solution if we need to, to this concern because we've heard you and we know that it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So um, as we come to the end of the episode here, I just wanted to, we always like to end with a sort of uh, a practical tip or two from the, uh, from, the, uh, from the guest. And so I'd, like to, I'd love to ask you, what's one simple trick or two habits that uh, our audience could get into, uh, could start applying today? You know, if, it, if everything is the same tomorrow as it was today, what's one thing they could do tomorrow? that would make them more influential or more persuasive? Yeah, so I, I would say two things. One, keep in mind that people never argue with their own data. And so when I'm going to work with someone or meet with someone, I think what is in their past or in their experience or in their world that will help me make the case. Mm -hmm. And I may need to listen, ask a lot of questions and get that before I can figure what that may be. Mm -hmm. But the more I can use people's own data to make my case, the better I'll be. Second, that it's more about me having a relationship with them mm -hmm. and listening to them and understanding them and them knowing they're heard so that they're willing to listen to me. And then the third, which I haven't mentioned, but I think is a almost a magical phrase, that if things start to go sideways, and not go the way I want. There's a wonderful question that I use sometimes that just goes, look, under what conditions would you consider? And then asking that question will often get me the criteria I need to fulfill in order to have this solution forwarded. And yep. so those would be the three tips I would mention at the end. One, build a relationship. Two, use their data. Three, if it goes sideways, ask the question, under what conditions would you consider? So hopefully those are three tips that people can, can take away and use, use right away. 
I think that's fantastic advice. So Greg, one last thing, what's the best way for people to stay up to date with what you're working on and, uh, and everything that you do? Yeah, thank you. So LinkedIn, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. And so you can find me at Greg Slavor, Z-L-E-V as in victory, O-R. It's an interesting spelling to the last name, but uh, people can find me on LinkedIn. Or, um, you know, they can find me on an email or on our website at westwoodinternational.com, which is westwoodintl.com, or just give me a call, 617-901-1900. There you go. You've got all the ways to reach Greg. He almost yeah. gave you at his home address, but I advised against you. <laughs> Not, not, not going to do that today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But it's building trust. Why would people distrust a man who would give out his home address? Yeah. Uh, so thanks again for your time. Once again, this episode was brought to you by HCI Strategic Talent Acquisition Conference. Make sure to sign up at staconference.com where we have live and virtual conference passes available. And for all ideas related to talent acquisition and HR, check out the Human Capital Institute at hci.org. If you have a comment or question on the show, email us at bestu at hci.org. We might just read it on the next show. Don't forget to like us, rate us, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Alan Mellish. <laughs>